the image that many people have in their mind of what the Last Supper was like comes from the famous painting of the event by Leonardo da Vinci. Last time in our Bible study, I showed you a painting by Leonardo da Vinci called Salvatore Monday, which is currently the most expensive painting in the world, having been sold in November of 2017 for the astonishing price of $450 million. Well, today we're looking at another painting by Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper, and it is one of the most famous and recognizable paintings in all the world. The original artwork is a mural that he painted on the wall of the dining room of the Dominican convent of Santa Maria della Grazia in Milan, Italy. It measures 15 feet high and 29 feet wide. It took him three years to complete. He started the project in 1495 and then working on and off after that, he finally completed it in 1498. Now, unfortunately, he used a non-standard kind of painting process that didn't hold up well over time. Almost immediately after he completed it, bits of the paint began to flake off. And as a result, very little of the original artwork actually remains as it has been repaired many times over the past 500 years. Here's a copy of the original painting by one of Leonardo's students at the time, and it is on display in the Royal Academy of Arts in London and considered the most accurate copy of the original available today. And in this copy, we can see much more of the detail of what is going on in the painting. Uh, rather than trying to portray the Last Supper event Accurately, historically, Leonardo da Vinci sought to capture the emotions of the moment when Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him. And various emotional reactions can be seen in the faces and in the physical gestures of those present at this meal. There is fear, there is surprise, anger, denial, confusion, sadness, self-doubt as they each react and they try to process what Jesus has said. Can you identify Judas in the painting? Let's see how well you... Yeah, you can see pretty well up there. There are at least three things that give away his identity. He's the third one to the left of Jesus. And first, notice that he is reaching for the same bowl that Jesus is reaching for. Second, in his right hand, he's grasping a bag of money. Dead giveaway. And third, he's knocked over and spilled the container of salt, which was considered a bad omen. Now, a few things about the painting that are not accurate historically include the way Jesus and the disciples are at the table. In the painting, they are shown sitting at a long table, all of them on the same side, side by side with one another, like they're taking a big selfie. The room is nicely decorated and upscale with current Italian decor of the late 1400s rather than first century Israel. The meal 
is taking place during the day. Now, in truth, where the meal was eaten was probably a simple, dimly lit room. It took place after sunset. They sat on cushions on the floor rather than in chairs. They used simple, common tableware rather than glass and silver. The bread would have been flat, unleavened-type bread rather than the round dinner rolls that we see in Leonardo's painting, and so on. Today, we're going to look at the actual historical account of the Last Supper by Matthew, one of the people who was there. So flipping your Bible over to Matthew chapter 26, Last time in our study, we noted the huge difference in how Mary and Judas each valued Jesus. You might remember Mary gave the most valuable thing she had to Jesus in a beautiful act of love and worship. She took a bottle of very expensive perfume, which represented what was most likely her life savings. And she anointed Jesus' head and feet with it. Judas, in contrast made the unthinkable decision to betray Jesus to the religious leaders of Jerusalem for a measly 30 pieces of silver. Well, we're picking the story up now in verse 17. Matthew 26, verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? It is Thursday of the final week of Jesus' life. He will be crucified on Friday. So it's Thursday. Jesus and his 12 disciples are probably, probably in Bethany again, the small town about two miles east of Jerusalem, situated on the other side of the Mount of Olives. You might remember this is where Lazarus and his two sisters, Martha and Mary, live. It is also where the story about Mary anointing the head and feet of Jesus with the expensive perfume took place. The disciples ask Jesus where in Jerusalem he wants to eat the Passover meal so they can make the necessary preparations. In the days of Jesus, the Passover meal was ideally eaten inside the city of Jerusalem. Well, what is Passover? Passover is the oldest and one of the most important of the Jewish feasts and festivals. Jewish people still observe Passover today. The Passover meal, called the Seder, commemorates the night God freed the Israelite people from Egyptian slavery. The story of Passover You might remember the Israelites, numbering about 70 people at the time, moved to Egypt in the days of Joseph in Genesis chapters 40 through 50, those last 10 or so chapters of the book of Genesis. And they moved there to survive a terrible drought in the region. Well, some 400 years later, in the days of Moses, the Israelite people numbered about 600,000 men plus women and children, making a likely total population of about 2 million people. 
The Egyptians had made the Israelites slaves, abusing them terribly, working them to death. Their lives became unbearable under the harsh treatment of the Egyptians, so they began to cry out to God for help. God answered their cry by raising up Moses to lead them out from under Egyptian slavery, back to the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham centuries before. Moses first tried to reason with the Pharaoh of Egypt to let the Israelites leave. But the Pharaoh refused to let them go. Instead, he increased the amount of work the Israelites were expected to do, and he punished them severely for not meeting their quotas. The Lord then brought a series of nine plagues against Egypt in an effort to convince the Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. But the Pharaoh continued to refuse. Finally, the Lord was going to bring one last plague against Egypt that would leave the land devastated. The firstborn male of every family in Egypt, including humans and livestock, would be killed on a given night by an angel of death. The Lord gave Moses very specific instructions for the Israelites to follow so that they would be protected from this terrible plague that was coming. Every Israelite family was to select a year-old male lamb or goat from their flocks, kill it, and then paint its blood on the doorframe of their house. They were then to eat the lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and be packed and ready to move out when the word was given. No one was to go outside of their home that night until Moses gave the word. Well, the death angel came and killed every firstborn son in Egypt. Exodus 12.30 says that there was not a house in Egypt without someone dead. It was an indescribably horrible scene. None of the Israelite families, though, were harmed. The blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses was a sign to the death angel to pass over their house and leave them untouched. The Egyptians then pleaded with the Israelites to leave their country, and so they did that very moment. The Passover meal that we're reading about in the Gospel of Matthew is a very special one. It's the most celebrated, talked about, and memorialized meal of all time. Millions and millions of people all over the world have been remembering and participating in a version of this meal since it first happened as part of their regular worship services. We here at Touchstone commonly refer to our participating in this meal at our church as communion. Verse 18, he replied, Jesus replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Jesus gives explicit instructions to his disciples for making preparations for the Passover meal. We learn from Luke 22.8 that the two disciples that are sent out to do this are Peter and John. 
Peter and John are to go to a certain man in the city of Jerusalem who will have a room for them to use for the Passover meal. Mark's and Luke's telling of the story says that Jesus tells them that a man carrying a jar of water will meet them, who they are to then follow to a certain house and then speak to the owner of that house about Jesus' need for a room for the Passover. So they gave us a little bit more detail. And there's this air of secrecy in the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples about where they will be eating Passover. Why is that? Well, remember, the religious leaders, they have been looking for a way to capture Jesus and have him killed. Jesus knows this, so he's taking precautions to prevent that from happening until it is the Father's will that it happen. Jesus also knows that Judas has agreed to betray him. He knows that. So he's probably keeping the location of their Passover meal a secret until the last possible moment, preventing Judas from informing the religious leaders about where it will be. The preparations that Peter and John will be doing for this meal includes the overseeing of the sacrificing of the lamb at the temple, the roasting of the lamb, preparing the various side dishes and drinks that are to accompany the meal, setting things up in the room, and so on. 20. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. While they're eating, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Try to imagine the impact of hearing that would have on the disciples during this meal. I mean, here they, they're all together, they're eating, feeling like things couldn't get any better. It is one of those special times when you're sharing a meal with close family and friends. Warmth and joy fills the room. You're all reflecting back on the stuff that's happened over the past three years together. You're telling stories. You're laughing and joking with each other. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus says, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Well, all the laughter immediately stops. All of the joy is sucked out of the room. And this heavy seriousness falls on them. It says they were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. So the response by the disciples is shock, fear, confusion, sadness, self-doubt. The one who has proven himself a discerner of all people's hearts has just said one of them will betray him. One of them is going to stab him in the back. They each ask Jesus, is it me? Please say it's not me. Lord. The one who is planning to betray him knows who Jesus is talking about. Judas has been carrying this dirty secret around with him, thinking no one knows. 
But Jesus knows. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. This remark by Jesus, it means that his betrayer is a friend, someone close to him, someone who is present, eating this meal with him. It was considered the worst kind of treachery to betray one that you eat with. He said, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. Behind Judas's actions, a divine purpose is being carried out. What happens to Jesus doesn't just happen randomly. The betrayal, the, ira- the arrest, the, the trial, the crucifixion, they're all the fulfillment of prophecies made hundreds of years earlier. It had all been foretold and was a part of God's plan to rescue humanity from sin and death. He says, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. The fact that God turns the wicked intents and actions of human beings around to serve His purposes doesn't excuse us. Judas is responsible before God for what he does, even if his actions were predicted hundreds of years before they were to happen. Judas still has a choice in the moment of time of his life to do the right thing. He chooses to stab Jesus in the back. He will be held responsible for that. There's the sovereignty of God, but there's also the choices that we make, and they're real choices that we're making, and they have consequences. Twenty-five. It says, "Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, "Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi." And Jesus answered, "You have said so." That would have been a very awkward moment, I think. It may have been at this point when Jesus does what's described in John's telling of the story. Over in John chapter 13, I want to read this little bit for us. 13 verse 26. Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. We can go back to Matthew 26 now.
Verses 26 through 30, which is what we're about to read, is what's commonly thought of as the communion portion of this meal. Christians celebrate and commemorate this moment in what's called communion, remembering what Jesus has done for us. On that night in Egypt, many years ago, the Israelites sacrificed lambs and put the blood on the doorframes of their homes to protect them from the judgment and death that fell on Egypt. And then God led them out of that slavery to the freedom in the promised land. Jesus is our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us to save us from eternal judgment and death. And he leads us out of the slavery to sin and death into the freedom of his salvation and eternal life. Communion is a kind of Passover meal for us. So in verse 26, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Jesus gives thanks to God for the bread, and he breaks it, and he gives it out to his disciples, and he says, take and eat, this is my body. In communion, the the bread symbolizes the body of Jesus Christ. His body was given for us. Just like the body of the innocent lamb was given for the Israelite family to provide protection from the death angel on the night they were delivered from slavery in Egypt, our lamb, Jesus, gave his life to protect us from God's judgment. Jesus bore in his body the punishment that we deserved. Isaiah 53, 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There are four cups which are drank as part of the Passover meal, the Seder. And it's believed that this is the third cup of the Passover meal, which is called the cup of redemption. Jesus gives thanks to God for the cup of wine, and then he gives it to his disciples, saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. The wine symbolizes the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood was spilled for our sins. His blood, which represents the giving up of his life, brings us forgiveness. The Jewish religious law declares that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood under the old covenant. And an innocent animal, an innocent animal was put to death in exchange for the lives of the people. The the sacrificing of animals had to be done again and again under the old covenant of the Jewish law. But Jesus, he offered himself once the perfect sacrifice which stands for through all of time. In Hebrews 9.24 it says, For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. 
He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that's not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. When God made the covenant with the Israelites, Moses took the blood from the sacrificed animals that were part of the ceremony, and he sprinkled it on the people, and he said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. And that blood ratified, sealed, made official and real this covenant between God and Israelites. Well, Jesus uses that, those same words and that same imagery here when he offers the cup as a symbol of his blood of the covenant between God and us. The blood of Jesus has ratified, sealed, made official and real a new covenant between God and us, the covenant of grace rather than of law. A covenant where the God of the universe accepts the death of his own beautiful, perfect son, Jesus Christ, as a substitute for our deaths. And the perfect righteousness of Jesus is applied to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 29, Jesus continues, he says, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus, he tells his disciples that he'll not drink of the festival cup again until he drinks it with the new community of redeemed people in the kingdom of God. We who are his followers will one day share that cup with Jesus. It's believed that this is a reference to the fourth cup of the Passover meal, which is called the cup of hope. Jesus is making a promise that he's coming back to complete his good work in us and establish his new kingdom, new heaven, and new earth. So in communion... In our communion service that we go through, we have both a looking back at what Jesus has done for us, and there is also a looking forward to his second coming. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, 26, Paul, talking about communion there, concludes by saying this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So to repeat, there is the looking back, remembering what Jesus has done for us in his suffering and his death. And there is a looking forward to his coming back to complete and to celebrate our salvation. We look forward to the day when we will be together with Jesus at the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. And finally, verse 30 says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There was a, the set of hymns that was typically 
saying after the Passover meal came from Psalms 115 through Psalm 118. And I would like us to end today by reading a portion of one of those Psalms. Psalm 116, verse 1. It says, I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because He turned His ear to me, I will call on Him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the unwary. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Let's bow our heads for prayer and closing. Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. We thank you that you, Jesus, are our Passover lamb. You've taken upon yourself the judgment that we deserve. You have protected us, saved us, rescued us, Lord. And you have given to us in exchange your righteousness. You've covered us with your perfect beauty. Lord, I ask that you would encourage your people this morning and Renew our hope that you're coming back to complete and to celebrate our salvation. And we thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.